Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Jeffrey Nitsch has built a diverse career as a composer, educator, performer, and thought leader in arts entrepreneurship. His music has been performed at major venues throughout the U.S. and Europe, including Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall, MoMA, and many others. His international reputation as an arts entrepreneurship educator includes numerous awards, including the Excellence in Specialty Entrepreneurship Award from the U.S. Association of Small Business and Entrepreneurship, and the Sharon Alpi Award for Innovative Pedagogy from the Society for Arts Entrepreneurship Education. His groundbreaking book, The Entrepreneurial Muse, applies traditional entrepreneurial theories to the performing arts. Since 2009, he served on the faculty of the University of Colorado Boulder, where he is an associate professor of composition and serves as director of the Entrepreneurship Center for Music, one of the leading programs of its kind. Jeff, it's great to speak with you on One Symphony today. I'd like to start with just talking about your background. You were interested in the stock market and Wall Street. Uh, you were a composition and geology double major. Your goal was to be a millionaire by the time of 30. I'm guessing that was with the composition aspect. <laughs> and you also were a <laughs> countertenor, played some piano, and you have this incredible new book, The Entrepreneurial Muse, Inspiring Your Career in Classical Music. I would just love if you could talk about a little bit of your background and how that not only veered into a life of music, but becoming someone who literally teaches people how to survive and thrive in the musical world and field we're living in. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me. And I'm looking forward to our conversation today. I was the kid who never could decide what he wanted to do when he grew up. You know, and that's kind of unusual I found in the musical world. So many kids if they want to be a professional musician, they want to go to music school, they're focused on that from a pretty early age. You have to be really. And I was in music, certainly, since my earliest memories are of music. And I was in a musical household. My parents were both choral singers. My dad had been a violinist when he was younger. They took me to every classical concert. You know, I always wanted to go to the symphony and the chamber music society and all that stuff. So I was in a musically rich household. 
But the lesson I always got was that music was a great thing to have in your life, but a lousy way to make a living. And so I was focused on other possible career things. I loved to write. So I was also interested in in the sciences. My dad was a veterinarian. And so, you know, we were in a household that science was valued as well. And, and so I was just curious and interested in lots of different things. You mentioned I was interested in the stock market. And so when I was a kid and working for my dad, all of us worked for my dad. We all, you know, had, had some money to spend. My older siblings spent it on teenage things. I saved every dollar. And uh, I don't know how even how it happened, but I got interested in following the stock market. And I, so I would buy like two shares of something, you know, cause I, cause we're not talking a lot of money here, but I was, I just was fascinated with, it and I was, I was good at it. Like I, I picked good stocks and, you know, played the cycles and all that kind of stuff. And so the million dollars that I wanted to make by, I was 30 was, was in the stock market. I had no illusions. I was going to be, get rich as a musician. I was going to major in economics, go to wall street, conquer the world, you know, and, and be indecorously rich. And, uh, I like to say that the I think the primary purpose of the undergraduate education experience is that it should in some substantial way change you the way you look at the world. And so my dream of going and becoming an economics and, and getting rich didn't last very long once I got into a, a wonderful liberal arts college, Franklin and Marshall College, and started to study all these other things, including composition for the first time. So my musical endeavors up to that point had always been performance oriented. And I was deemed by my teachers to have insufficient talent to think about being a pianist or a, a professional singer. So, you know, I just thought, well, I don't have any options. But then when I started to study composition, it was just like, you know, my whole world just opened up in an, in an amazing way. And so I started to take music much more seriously. And at the same time, took a geology course and fell equally in love with the study of geology. And so I ended up doing a double major in music and geology, ended up going to grad school in geology for a little while before realizing that you can't do everything. Sometimes you do have to make a choice, one thing or the other. And when I came down to that, it was no debate. You know, I knew that I had to be in music. And now how that translated into what I'm doing now is, you know, running the Entrepreneurship Center here at the University of Colorado Boulder and teaching our music students about how to build a career for themselves in music or oftentimes outside of music. That's a, a slightly different story. So when I finished up my, my graduate work at Rice University, got my DMA, you know, what do you do with a DMA in composition? You go and you teach composition and theory in a university setting. And I said to my teachers, I don't, I don't want to do that. I still don't want to do that. I, even though I'm in higher ed now, I would not want to be in higher ed as a composition teacher or as a theory professor. It's just not my calling. It's not where my joy is, you know. And there are people here that do it far better than I ever could. So, uh, so it's all good. But, you know, and, and I told this to my teachers and they were just, they were flabbergasted. You know, they were like, well, what else are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to support myself as a freelance musician. And they didn't really have a response to that. They just sort of said, well, are you sure? <laughs> because, you know, this was, this was back in the Cretaceous period. So, you know, there weren't any career development programs in conservatories at all. Nobody had anything. And so if you in any way deviated from the expected path for your discipline, 
there really wasn't anything for you in terms of resources of how to do that. You just had to jump off the cliff and hope that you, you know, either as the saying goes, either you're, you're find the ground or you learn to fly. Right. So I, I went off and was a freelance singer and composer, had a lot of different kinds of day jobs, got into arts administration for a while, ran the Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble was their executive director for six seasons. And eventually I got thinking to myself, you know what? I've learned so much over these last, at that point, 15 years. I've learned so much about how the music world works, about how to survive in the music world, about the intersections between business and, and your creative work. And I, I think maybe if there were some sort of program now that I could either start or join, that would be a really great thing for me. And right around that time, I heard about this job at Colorado, and that's what brought me here. So it's been a really interesting journey with a lot of different uh, twists and turns. A couple of interesting things that I, well, first of all, I think I was in high school and we were doing investing in, um, in econ economics or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I chose Swisher Sweets, which was a cigar maker at that time. And I ended up making the most money. I don't remember how much it was, but I like tripled my investment. It was a fake investment because it was in high school. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so the most money I've ever made was was a fake investment, by the way. <laughs> and and I think that's interesting that you went to liberal arts school. And I, I love your quote about the mark of a good college education is that you leave a different person when you come in. I went to liberal arts school too, and I was going for biology basically to be pre-med mm. and become a doctor. And, but I also played baseball and, and trombone and piano. And, and I was, so I got scholarship because of that, you know, to study the sciences, but there was a pivot there. You know, somebody asked you, you want to be a geologist? Well, maybe you want to be a musician. Yes. That's all kind of, that's what I want to do. I want to be in, in the music field and be surrounded by music making. It's interesting that, that when I was at that school, like it may be at that time, it's almost seen as a disadvantage to not be in a music conservatory. I mean, I even almost transferred at one point to San Francisco Conservatory when I was getting very serious mm-hmm. about the music studies. But I wonder if that's changed now. And I think, you know, when you talk about your background, your strengths are that that you have this full-blooded liberal arts, Jeffersonian kind of <laughs> ed- yeah. education in, mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could kind of comment on that and also somebody who teaches music and entrepreneurship at a, essentially a conservatory at a state school? Yeah, there is a whole bunch of stuff to unpack there in that question, but it's a great question. Certainly by the time I was thinking, maybe I want to go to graduate school in music. At that point, I'd already finished my undergraduate degree. I was in geology grad school and it was something of a disadvantage having gotten a Bachelor of Arts degree in music as opposed to a Bachelor of Music. And there were a lot of places where I just didn't even meet the requirements in, in, in their eyes. I got into Rice, which of course was a great school, really pretty much on the power of the fact that my undergraduate composition teacher was a protege of Paul Cooper, who was the head of the department at Rice at that time. And it was a very much a thing of my teacher calling Paul Cooper and saying, you got to take this kid you know, and, <laughs> and then, and then Paul saying, okay, you know, it was very much a sort of an insider job. And so I think that might be somewhat less true now, particularly in composing. And 
I'd be curious to see what you think about whether or not that's also true in conducting. But I think in terms of, you know, performance, I still think it's, a, you'd have to be a, a very special and extraordinary and super talented person to have gotten a liberal arts degree in music and, and, and want to apply to graduate school as a performer, right? You'd, you'd have to be kind of a special animal. Now, as far as teaching these things in a conservatory now, oh boy, <laughs> there are many times when I feel like I'm a little bit of a lone wolf because the conservatory is so specialized and prescribed you know, the flute teacher teaches flute, the theory teacher teaches theory. And on a slightly broader scale, the music school prepares musicians for lives as professional performers and, and composers and educators. And so there is not a lot of cross threads either within the College of Music or between the, the music school and the university at large. And I think that is a huge problem you know, the, the arts, and we could talk more about this, but, you know, the arts are becoming more and more interdisciplinary. The performing arts are involving media and video and live sound manipulation and unconventional performance spaces, un unconventional performance practices, mixing of traditional Western instruments and non-Western instruments, like all these things. And here in the conservatory, we're still in basically the same educational model that was developed in Germany in the 19th century. And, you know, here we are in the 21st century. And I think that some folks in the academy are beginning to recognize that we're kind of at a day of reckoning in terms of really needing to dig into this question of what does it mean to prepare musicians for the future? Because we're still preparing them for the past mm -hmm. <laughs> right now. But it's a slow process. Do you think that's part of part of the reason that's happening is because the professors of today, they grew up, you know, learning that way. And so yes. why would they teach their students anything different? I'm seeing that little by little that more schools are, are doing a program that you've had at CU Boulder for, for years. And also, it seems like they're looking more for people who are you know, interdisciplinary, as you, as you mentioned, and mm -hmm. people who have actually built something like, because that's, I feel like in the classical music world, unless you have that, I mean, and, and you're the, when I think of entrepreneurship, you're the kind of the poster boy for that. Unless you have that, that sense, that drive, or unless you're just a phenomenal virtuoso musician, which there are so many of, and that's what our, our conservatories do so well. Mm -hmm. It's it's difficult to kind of find a, a place, um, whether it be in, in a university or a professional setting. No, that's it's absolutely right. When programs like the one at CU, and including the one at CU in its early days, when those programs were just starting to kind of come onto the scene, and even though the Entrepreneurship Center here in Boulder is 20 years old, we were the first. So most of the, the sort of momentum around this issue didn't really start to accumulate until about 10 years ago. Institution after institution after institution, I've talked to folks all over the country about this. I've talked to folks in Europe about this. There's always this initial resistance on the part of most of the faculty who, for the exact reason you said, they're like, well, I didn't learn that stuff when I was coming up, you know, and, and I turned out fine. And, and that's more than just about not recognizing that the world has changed. I think that's too simplistic. What I came to realize, the more I lived that in my own experience and the own more I talked with other people about it, 
I realized that I represented a, a kind of indictment of the status quo. It's almost like I'm saying, you're, you're not doing enough, so I have to step in and fill in, fill in this thing, which is not the way I look at it at all. But I think it can be perceived that way but from the standpoint of the applied teacher who came up in a different era. And so a big piece of figuring out how to do this effectively is to work with the applied faculty and say, I'm not here to undermine anything that you do. I'm not here to criticize anybody. It's just that you do what you do great, which is teach your students how to play their instrument and master their craft. And let me work with you to help them piece together the other parts of the puzzle. You know, I, I like to say that when I make that comment about we haven't changed since 19th century Germany, I always want to add that that system, the, the sort of the conservatory Western canon <laughs> way of, of teaching classical music, it's tremendously effective. It's a tremendously successful pedagogy. Just look at all of the great musicians out there and look at all the great artists that have been produced by that system over the last 150 years. It's a huge success. It's just hasn't evolved very much. And, and so that's where the problem is. And so I don't, I don't believe that one has to throw out everything, but I do think that the conservatory has got to learn how to broaden their vision of what it means to be educated in the performing arts in general. Are some of the ways that through that program that you've actually been able to kind of mix up the status quo? Certainly on a concrete level, we now have a course that's required of all our performance majors. It's called Building Your Music Career, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the soup to nuts, everything you needed to know about being a professional musician covers a really broad swath of stuff. And when I came here 13 years ago, that was a that was an elective, and there were you know eight students in it. And now it's required, and we have two sections, and you know about 75, 80 students take it every year. And that has resulted, I think, in a kind of a cultural shift amongst the faculty that this is something that's important and is valued and respected. I think also in terms of changing the culture, I think 10 years ago the attitude was that that my program was for those who we're going to need a little extra help succeeding out in the world. And now I think people realize that you can have all the talent in the world and that's still going to be a hard road if you don't have these tools. And so, so that kind of stigma about, you know, this is for people who can't quite hack it. You know, I, I don't think that's, that's a very prevalent thing anymore, but in a more sort of broad kind of intangible way, I think just being a constant voice and advocate for allowing greater flexibility in degree plans, you know, allowing, we were just having a discussion the other day in a faculty meeting about for our doctoral students, this is for a DMA, right? So this is the applied degree in violin, let's say, you know, and they still have to write a major thesis paper of some kind, even though it's not a PhD. And we were sort of asking, is that, is that always the best thing? Are there other ways 
that we can prepare our students better for the world they're living in. So for instance, we now have a thing where you can make a recording rather than doing your major paper. Your recording can be your big doctoral project. But what else could that be? What else might that consist of? And, and, and trying to just recognize that there are a lot of different ways to do high-level research that is more performance-based and more uh, driven by artistic goals rather than academic or, or theoretical uh, kinds of goals, which is what academia, of course, thrives in. And so just those kind of those cultural shifts, I think, are, are in the long run going to be the most significant things. One of the things you've said a few different times is your value is not self-evident to others. Can you talk about what you mean by that in terms of being a young musician, you know, trying to kind of take in everything that's coming at you, trying to get better, trying to make connections, and maybe you can also talk about the importance of that in terms of how you perceive your value and how others perceive one's value? Well, yeah, absolutely. This lesson goes goes beyond the arts for sure, but I think it's particularly common in the arts. I remember I was talking with a student at a conference and he said in like a focus group, and the question was, how do you feel about studying entrepreneurship as part of your music degree? And this one kid said, I don't think we should have to worry about that. And I'm like, can you tell me why you feel that way? I just, I want to understand what you, what you're saying. And he said, that's somebody else's job. And it gets to this question of, the value of what you do is not self-evident. Just because you went to a great school and you can play your horn well or whatever your instrument is, that does not mean that other people are going to recognize that they should hire you when the world is swimming with great horn players, right? And so I think musicians, we focus just on the idea of mastering their instrument as if that's going to be the thing that gets us noticed. And unless you are just a total phenom, that is not the thing that's going to get you noticed. The thing that's going to get you noticed is your particular artistic voice, the imagination that you bring to the table, the way you are able to articulate how you can serve somebody else. And that's what I mean about your value is not self-evident. It's, it, it requires some, you know, some explanation. It's, it's kind of like uh, I talk to a lot of students who are music majors and but they've decided they don't want to be stay in music and they're like how am i ever going to get a job outside of music i don't have anything on my resume and and but i know i could do these jobs right so we have to figure out a way to explain to a layperson how a musical education develops these various other skills that are transferable in other disciplines but that won't be obvious to anybody outside of music right we have to tell that narrative we have to connect the dots for people to see that the value that we bring to the world. So, you know, anytime for me personally, the way that plays out in my creative life is when I'm trying to convince an organization to commission me to write them a piece, obviously they've got to like the music that I write, you know, and they can go to my website and decide if they like my music or not. But again, that's by itself, not likely to be enough to get me a commission. But if I can go to them and say, this is what I can do for you. I have a lot of experience with community engagement. I can go out in schools and talk to people. I can, I'm really great with, you know, stuff on the radio and media. Basically give them a plan, sort of a, put it on a platter for them about this is how you can promote this piece. This is how I can help build your audience, 
help you do what you want to do. And then people are like, well, that sounds a lot more interesting. And at that point, they almost don't care whether or not they like my music, <laughs> as long as it's not like offensively bad, they're, they're on board, you know? So I think that's another example of what I mean about articulating your value. Can you talk about what that process looks like? Maybe we can move to a little bit more about classical music organizations. Maybe you could start with how you as a composer reach out, how you break down those barriers of it's just, okay, new piece, here's a new composer in town. We're going to play this music and we'll never hear from anybody again kind of thing. Like, How do you convince orchestras that are not used to doing that, do that? And also how would you kind of guide young composers who have who are spend you know most of their time in their own in their studio or or whatever their bedroom whatever it is just writing music and really not being able to interact too much one of the things that i talk about all the time with my students is the importance of relationships and you have got to get out of your studio and be a an active member of your musical community, whatever form that might take. And that means like physically what's locally right there around you, but also being involved with things on the national scale, organizations, social media, try to have meaningful connections with as many people as you can, because that's the wellspring from which everything else comes. If I cold call an orchestra, and even if I do hand them everything on this platter, it's still not likely to get me anywhere, you know, because basically I'm asking them to take the time and the effort to research me enough to decide that what I'm pitching to them is legit and they ought to pay attention to it. And they're not going to do that if they don't know me or if they don't have some kind of relationship with me. I think the issues around networking, there's a couple of things that make that especially challenging for musicians. One is that I think many musicians, if not most of us, are introverts. And so the, the idea of going out and, you know, networking or schmoozing or whatever kind of word you want to associate with it is scary for a lot of people. And so the first thing I always tell students is you've got to address that head on. You've got to figure out, okay, why am I anxious about this? Or why am I procrastinating reaching out to this person? And of course the answer is because we don't want to fail and we don't want to feel stupid for you know, whatever. So the first thing is you've got to just sort of kind of own whatever your anxiety might be around that. Related to that is you've got to address, you know, what are these negative associations? We tend to think of the schmoozing thing as in some way a little bit, you know, kind of greasy, kind of, you know, like, like, we're, like it's inauthentic and we're trying to, you know, bamboozle somebody into doing something for us right? Which is a very transactional way of, of looking at things. And that's just kryptonite. You know, it, it, you can't go into it with that kind of expectation. Go into it by thinking to yourself, this is another musician. So we already have something in common. Let me find out what more we have in common. Maybe, maybe this musician is the kind of person who doesn't see music or its role in the world, anything like I do. Well, then I probably, we're not going to work well together, right? But maybe we find out that, wow, we are like firing back and forth on the same wavelength. I want to get to know this person. I want to work with this person. I want to help them do what they do, right? Now it's not transactional anymore. Now it's just about, I've made a great connection with somebody and we agree that we'd like to work together someday. And when you do that enough, you're going to build this wonderful community of people 
And that's where the opportunities are going to come. I also think our society is built around this idea of success. When we're talking about organizations, I heard about a year ago or something in a fundraising seminar. If people are not telling you no a couple times a week, (laughs) you're not asking enough, you know? And th- and that goes not only for development committees or boards asking for donations, but also for composers or conductors or musicians putting themselves out on a limb. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I I remember being told a story of a conductor who puts all of his rejection letters on on his bathroom. You know, it fills up the as wallpaper. You know, like, I love I, it. I love it. Uh, I, I've never collect. I've never done that, but really quickly when you when you get out of school when you're leaving your graduate work you learn how to how to take rejection right first couple of Mm -hmm. times it's rough and then it just becomes part of life it's just like oh yeah it's if i get if one opportunity out of out of 10 or 20 or 30 it's like yeah there we go and so i think that's a big kind of shift not only in the in the arts world but culturally that we we always see whether it be in in media or film or arts at the highest level, we, we see the result of years of failure, but we don't see the failure. We see that the success is just the result of all this failure. So I think that that's something to impart to young musicians that, that I would have loved to have been told, okay, failure is just part of life. And even not, not, not only as a college student, but as starting as a child, but learning how to mm-hmm. fail. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you think about the musician biography, whether it's in like a concert program or something else, it, it does exactly what you say. It, it lists all of the accomplishments. Well, they won this big competition and then, you know, the next year they did this and this. And then all of a sudden there's like a four year gap before the next big thing that is celebrated in the biography. Right. And I'm always, we skip over that without stopping and saying, well, what was going on during that four years? Were they thinking, gosh, I was rolling along so great and now everything has screeched to a halt and needing to go back to my day job and am I ever going to get past this point and maybe I ought to give up music? Like like we skip over all of those moments of not just failure, but you know, self-doubt and the struggle that that comes with being an artist sometimes. And you're absolutely right. We skip over that and I think we do people a disservice because then when they themselves are in those moments of struggle or doubt, or they've just had a rejection and they're not sure what's next, they think that there's something wrong with them. They think that they have failed, not just in this one particular instance, but like sort of more (laughs) broadly, you know, I am a failure. And it's a terrible disservice to, to skip over those struggles. That's why I try to talk very openly about the fact that, Hey, there've been a couple times where I almost said, that's it. I'm, I'm done with music. I can't do this anymore. I'm so frustrated. I'm so discouraged. I, I don't hide from those stories. I, I sort of wear them out as a badge of courage because I want people to know that that's much more accurate picture of the way our lives tend to unfold, especially in the arts. And it's also the culture of the social media culture. There is some good vulnerability and that, that gets shared significantly and kind of goes around the world. But for the most part, it's like people just, it's this fake thing of, of like, this mm-hmm. is what my life, this is my idea of my life that I would like to present to the world. And I, I maybe, maybe while we're here, I would just love to ask how can orchestras kind of utilize the culture and the media, maybe mainly social media in terms of marketing to cater to the, to, to a newer audience, to bring people into the concert halls that, that, that may 
you know, be reluctant because of our past transgressions of excluding them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, the, the first thing you've got to do, and it's the most important thing, and it is most often skipped <laughs> by, by orchestras especially, is that you've got to go to those communities that you would like to have show up in your concert hall and find out what it is that they want to get out of the experience, right? Rather than just trying to come up with a new, cooler way to convince them to buy a ticket, which is sure to fail. The entrepreneurial approach is, how can I help you meet your needs? And what needs do you have and how can I, how can I serve you, right? Which is not the way we tend to think of marketing. Usually marketing is, I, need, I want to try to convince you to come to my show. You know, and so you have to start with understanding who it is you're trying to reach, what their sensibilities are, and then think creatively and collaboratively about how the orchestra can meet those needs or, or you as an individual artist can help meet those needs. This is really true when we get into discussions about, you know, diversity and inclusion. I'd love to tell a story a few years ago, a, a good friend who's uh, I'll just say a, a principal in a major orchestra. I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it that way. It's so that it's uh, completely anonymous. They posted something on their Facebook page and they said, hi, I've been put onto my orchestra's diversity committee. And we're, we've been charged with finding, you know, programming to reach out to the African-American community and, and the economically marginalized communities of our, of our city. I'm not quite even sure why I'm on the diversity committee because I'm a white guy, but Maybe it's because I'm gay and that's, that's like the only diversity card I can play here, but I don't even know where to start with this task. What do you guys think I should do? You know, do you have any ideas? And I knew exactly what was going to happen. So I just sort of zipped my mouth and watched for a couple of days while like a hundred people comment on this post. Crowdsourcing at and its they, finest. <laughs> crowdsourcing at its finest, right? And some of them were possibly good ideas, but they were all just like, you should do this. You could try this. You should do this. You could try this. And comment after comment after comment. And I'm just sitting there watching, waiting. And finally, after two days of this, I like, I couldn't stand it anymore. And so finally I unzipped my mouth and I said, if you want to reach a particular community, why don't you talk to them? And it, it, like immediately the whole conversation just shut down completely because everyone was like, oh, wow. Right. We, we skipped that part. Right. And some of the ideas that were might be great ideas, but how would you know? Right. And, and so I think that that's, you know, orchestras say we want to have younger audience find out what they want. And maybe it does start with, we want film music or we want, you know, something else, but we, we have to just think creatively about how we can take what we do to the communities we're trying to reach rather than say, it's incumbent on you, first time symphony goer or never time symphony goer, to come to us on our terms and buy our ticket and come to our concert hall. I, I just don't think you're going to have much luck with that. Well, and I think one of the challenges is it's easy to talk about like, okay, this community, that community, but within a community mm -hmm. and within every orchestra, like anytime we would do a survey, it's like you see that every individual is a different person, right? So it's hard to, like somebody could represent a certain community, but they might like different music from the majority of the people in that community or, or they have different expectations. So I think that, I mean, sure. I think orchestras do 
try to survey a lot. They try to bring different stakeholders and different communities on on boards, on committees, into as musicians in the orchestra, composers, etc. That seems to be the challenge. Is that more and more it seems where everyone is their own person, whether they may be black, Hispanic, mm-hmm. gay, or uh, whatever it may be. And it's difficult to say, okay, this community or that community. I agree totally. And I am convinced having run a new music ensemble and also as a composer of, you know, quote unquote, modern music, even though my music is pretty accessible, is that the general audience is much more open to music of different styles, including modern music, than we tend to give them credit for. And the reason I know that is that you know, in Pittsburgh with Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble, we have a very theatrical approach to staging new music with with lights and video and, and careful blocking of movement on stage and, and so forth. And we built an audience of people that they're not the typical new music audience, which is a subcategory of the classical music audience, right? The adventuresome theater uh, symphony goer. That really wasn't much of our audience. Our audience was folks who just thought what we did was really cool. And we never had to wonder about whether or not what we were doing was, was, you know, too thorny or too atonal or whatever. It was irrelevant. And I think the way that applies to the the point you were just making a second ago, which is a really important one is that, you know, communities are not homogeneous, but I think we have to look at ways to connect the orchestra's mission beyond just selling a certain kind of repertoire. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. So when I wrote my first symphony, it was a uh, inspired by the formation of the Rocky Mountains. So again, going back to my ge- geology roots there. So this is my my geological symphony. This is a wonderful and piece. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And one of the things we did was we collaborated with the City of Boulder Open Space and Mountain Parks. And they have this program of, you know, naturalists and, you know, experts in various aspects of the natural world. And they do hikes up into the flat irons and they talk about the, the plants and the birds and, you know, whatever else. So one of the guys at the parks department does a geological talk where we walk up into the flat irons and he talks about the different rocks that you see, because there's lots of great geology right outside our window here, here in Boulder. And, So we said, okay, what if we made these musical hikes? What if Jeff, this is because this is before the performance, right? What what if I made some good MIDI realizations with some good sampled orchestral sounds and, you know, had made some little excerpts from the symphony, put it into a a, a Bose portable speaker and we go out and we do the hikes together and the, the naturalist guy talks about the rocks. And then I talk a little bit about the music and actually play it through the portable speaker. And this was a huge hit. And the first one we did, we get there, there's about 60 people there, which is actually wow. kind of a too big of a group actually to be practical, but it was that popular. And so we're talking, we're sort of doing introductory remarks. And I said, I'm curious, how many of you are regular concert goers to the to the Boulder Philharmonic. How many of you have ever gone to the Boulder Philharmonic or do it with any regularity? And like one person raised their hand. And I'm like, so all of you folks just heard about this in the paper and thought, that sounds fascinating. And they showed up and then they came to the concert. There were so many people at that concert who had never been to a symphony concert before. Now, I don't know how many of those 
then decided I'm going to start coming to the symphony more often. Maybe not many of them did. I'm sure some of them did though. So it, it, you know, it, it's about making this connection that might not be directly musical. Another example, Colorado symphony a few years ago did a performance of Benjamin Britten's war requiem. One of the great masterpieces of 20th century, a profound, big, huge piece. Right. And they were doing it on, in fact, it was 2018. It was on the 100th anniversary of the ending of the First World War because the War Requiem, as you know, Devin, and many of your listeners may know, you know, uses poetry from this guy, Wilfred Owen, who fought in the First World War. He was a pacifist and he was killed. Okay. So they're doing this on the centennial of the ending of the First World War. And I, I was talking to some folks there at the, at the orchestra and I said, I assume it's not a coincidence that you're doing this on the centennial of the, of the thing. And they said, oh, no, we did that very, very uh, intentionally. I said, so what are you doing in the community? Have you reached out to veterans groups or the historical society or nothing? Hmm. They weren't doing anything. You know, and I'm like, if your pitch is come see the War Requiem because it's the centennial of the ending of the First World War and you should want to hear this piece – the only people who are going to be motivated by that are the people who already know that the Britain War Requiem is not to be missed, and <laughs> they're going to go. And that was me, right? I was like, oh, Britain War Requiem, marked it on my calendar, put a star around it, right? I didn't need to be marketed to. I just needed to know that it was happening, and I was there. But what an opportunity. Think about the press, the, the, the community buzz that could have happened if there were some things that were organized in co- cooperation with, like I said, veterans groups or with History Colorado, like who were the Coloradans that went and fought in the war and what do we know about their stories? And, and you know, there's so much rich stuff to, to explore there. And then maybe you have a thing where if you went to one of these events or you're a veteran or you're an active duty military personnel, you get in for half price or, you know, something like that, some additional enticement to actually have them come to the concert. That's the kind of way that you build relevance for your community. And it's not about convincing everybody that Benjamin Britten is a great composer. It's about saying, here's why Britten's music matters to you, fill in the blank, whatever it might happen to be, right? That can be a very successful way to engage with certain snippets of our community is mm-hmm. to do these collaborations with themes that are always outside the the, the realm of music. Um, you know, you, from right. geology to World War One to uh, Star Wars, for for instance, right? And and I think that yeah. the, the, maybe a lot of people might be thinking right now, well, okay, we can do that. How do you how do you keep them right? How do you? And I'd maybe love for you to comment on that, and and maybe also talk about at the Pittsburgh new music ensemble, the first timer program. I think this is genius. Oh, yes. um, and I would love maybe you to talk about, so kind of that audience retention in general. Mm-hmm. There are marketing experts, right. That can get deep down into data and all sorts of stuff around these things, but you do have to make sure that once you've made these connections that we're talking about, that there is some mechanism for following up with them. And I don't just mean putting them on a mailing list. And it's like, now we have you captive and now we're going to start sending you flyers every time we have a concert because that's not likely to, to result in anything. It's like likely to be very effective. But if, you know, if there are ways to find out, first of all, get feedback from people, how do you, how do you like what we did? What would you like to see more of now? Because you've already engaged them with that first step. And now I think your survey can be a lot more meaningful, frankly, 
because you're getting that outsider perspective, finding ways to make it more personal. So what we did in Pittsburgh, our, our company color is lime green. And so our first timer program was called a first limer. <laughs> and if you were first limer, you've never been to the, the new music ensemble before. And first limers get in for free. And I remember when we first launched this, we were doing a thing on the radio and the, and the host asked me, he said, aren't you worried about, you know, somebody lying about it? You know? And I said, if somebody wants to come to my show so badly that they're willing to lie about it, they are welcome to come in. Right. Like, just like, I want to see these people, <laughs> you know, I mean, I really wasn't that worried about it. <laughs> and then another thing was, oh, you can't do that. You're losing ticket revenue. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not losing ticket revenue until I am selling out every show with paid tickets, which I am not currently doing. <laughs> so <laughs> these are people who <laughs> weren't going to come anyway. <laughs> and so I'm not losing any money by giving them a free ticket. But then it was about what happens next. So after every show, for instance, we have a BYOB after party kind of thing in the lobby. Sometimes that goes on longer than the show. Sometimes the venue has to like say, we have to shut the doors now. We have to lock up. You people have to go home. <laughs> All of the artists are out there talking with people. We're getting to know people. When somebody has been coming now, and so they're no longer a first limer, but if they bring a first limer with them, they get their ticket half off. So there's this incentive to continue to build. And we had actually a social club of sort of our, our, our diehard fans. And we would get together when the artists were in town or the board would do something and just get together socially and talk about what's going on in your life, talking about what's coming up on the next season and just keeping people engaged. That's obviously harder to do on the scale of, of a symphony or an opera company or something where we've got, you know, a, a mailing list of thousands. But I think if you can find ways to better socially engage the folks who have indicated that they are interested in what you do. That's how you begin to build a more solid base of support, I think. That's cool. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's been great to speak with you and, and hear about what you're doing at CU Boulder at the Center for Entrepreneurship and um, Jeffrey Nish's book, The Entrepreneurial Muse, Inspiring Your Career in Classical Music, can be picked up wherever you uh, read or listen to your books. Jeff, it's been such a great pleasure speaking with you and thank you for giving students the tools to thrive in the classical music world. Well, thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. Thanks to Jeffrey Nitsch for sharing his music and insights. You can get more info at www.jeffreynitsch.com. Works on the show today include Jeffrey's For the Trees, played by the Avalis Quartet, and Seize the Sun, performed by Carpe Diem String Quartet. Thank you to Kim at Johnson & Stories for editorial contributions. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Yeah.